You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. My guest on the pod today is Dina Chris. Uh, she works at the Perkins School for the Blind, where she teaches improv to the visually impaired. And she's actually done a number of programs with different communities. Uh, and I think you're going to find this podcast interesting. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job At the desk by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Dina, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Uh, there's a couple of things that I read that you wrote that I want to dig into right now, which are sort of general theory or philosophy around improvisation. Okay. Uh, and the first one that you wrote, you say, quote, improv says yes to the idea of ideas, end quote. Mm-hmm. Elaborate on that for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably, I say that a lot. Um, I say it a lot in in a corporate training context and in an educational context. So The idea that I'm trying to get across to those populations is that we often spend so much time just deciding whether we should do a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And if we have an improvisational mindset, what we agree to from the get-go is we're going to say yes. We're going to say yes to whatever it is. And that doesn't mean that every idea gets greenlit and we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it or that we spend a year teaching kids something that doesn't work. It means that we agree to try. Yeah. And I think that's so important because I think people misunderstand uh, the sort of philosophy around yes and of Mm -hmm. being like, well, then, you know, like I can't yes and every single thing. It's like, you can in yeah. very early stages. Yes. So it's it's the idea of like let's let's uh, assume uh, uh, positivity. Let's assume competence. All those things, and and then if if the idea isn't worthy of pursuing, we don't need to pursue it. But by shutting off so early, and I say this in the context of producing Second City shows for decades, which is like sure. the 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 absolute like craziest ideas that didn't seem like they will work are the best scenes that end up in the show. Right. And the only reason we ever saw them is because you have a bunch of people who just know to yes and each other. Right. And, and if we're talking about, if we take it off the stage and we're talking about um, how much innovation is needed in the business world and in the education world, uh, very much needed, uh, then if we don't agree 
that we're going to hear ideas and explore ideas and play with ideas and experiment. And if we don't agree that that is a good thing, then we're never going to move the needle forward at all in business or in education. All right. So that's, that's this need for abundance, which there's science about that backs that up. Another thing you say, which is a little bit different and I want to explore together is quote, the magic of improv for corporate training, for education, for therapy gives us the flexibility and awareness to give people what they need in that moment. Yeah. I think that's deeper than even maybe sounds reading the sentence, but (laughs) let's, let's go into it. Yeah. I think that often, um, solutions are prescribed ahead of time. We think we know what someone needs and we bring that to them. And what improvisation allows us to do is actually live in the moment, right? That's what we talk about in scene work. It's what we teach in every class, the idea that we should be right here, paying attention to this moment. Every movement matters. Every word matters. Every breath matters. And if that is true, then it allows us to actually tap into the person in front of us and what they need right then, instead of deciding ahead of time, oh, I know what you need, or listening to half the problem and assuming you have the solution. Um, and, And if that is true, then we can deliver a product, whether that is a therapeutic product or an educational product or a, or a product for a company that really is delivering on what they need. And, and isn't that our job? Uh, I've been playing around with a bunch of sort of mind body stuff lately, both in terms of things I've read, but also with my therapist. Mm -hmm. And she gave me these breathing exercises that have been transformative in terms of being able to uh, basically negate my uh, instant anxiety when I'm driving and something happens or whatever. And, 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 And it's been fascinating to me because I think I understood this from an improvisational context and from a verbal context, but I'd never understood it from a sort of a body context, which is, yeah. which is also uh, something that's, that's, this is going to trans, uh, we're going to transition soon to the work you're doing right now. Uh, but that, that it's a, it opens up an entire new world when I think about it, like, Oh, my breath has this mm-hmm. impact. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, it, it was actually like me as a musical improviser learning all of those same breathing exercises mm-hmm. that helped unlock for me the thing you just described, right? Oh. Where we realize, I realized in my own body, I actually feel much calmer after a musical warm up. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so the ability to sort of play with that on my own and realizing, okay, well, if that works for me, I, I bet this will work for other people as well. So that's been sort of my entire career is sort of taking these things I'm learning in an improv class, which seems performance-based, right? That's how, that's how mm-hmm. I'm learning it. And then looking around the world and being like, I bet, I bet this would work with, you know, X population. Yeah, because I mean, and, and what shouldn't be surprising about that is everyone has to perform. Right. So literally in a variety of contexts and there's backstage behavior and there's onstage behavior. And it's like, and that, that, that translates completely to these places that we find ourselves, whether it's at home with our kids or whether it's with our coworkers at work. Yeah. And it's, it's a cheesy thing to say. And I say it anyway, um, which is none of us woke up with a script this morning. Yeah. The, The reality is every single person moving through the world is an improviser. They don't call it that. They're not aware of it. Once you tell them that, they freak out. But it's true that we all have to be flexible, be adaptable, um, think on our feet every single day. It's just when you call it out that people get nervous about it. 
So the thing that sort of got me really interested in talking to you uh, was the work uh, you do at the Perkins School for the Blind. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us about the program there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Perkins School for the Blind is the oldest school for the blind in the country. It is the second oldest school for the blind in the world. Um, Helen Keller was uh, was taught by Perkins teachers and then came and taught at Perkins. Um, she's sort of everyone's reference point for uh, the blind and deafblind community. Um, so the work that I'm doing is with adults. So we have a program called Career Launch where we train adults in job-specific skills and help them find work. Um, we created the program because 70%, 70% of adults with visual impairments are unemployed. Mm. They're able to work. They can't work. And 90% of people who lose their sight as a child will never have a long-term job without intervention. So we created this program to help that crisis. Um, And I'm using improvisation as a way to teach job skills and communication skills to the adults in our program. Um, I'm flashing back to my interview with Sanford Greenberg. So if, if any of my listeners haven't, it's maybe my favorite podcast we, we ever did. He's a, um, uh, a philanthropist who worked in the white house. Um, but he went blind his, uh, sophomore year at Columbia university in like 1960, 62. And, and he talked about at that time, this, this idea that basically for blind people, there were two jobs, small town judge or caneback chair maker. Uh, yeah. and, 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 that, and I've had people verify like that. Yeah. Yes. And, and it hasn't just like gotten that much better. And the fascinating, there's so many in this thing, but like Art Garfunkel was his roommate and he helped him like achieve all this, <laughs> this stuff, but he went forward. But I thought, you know, I, I really didn't think about that as much in an improvisational context, just Sanford's got some great stories. Um, sure. But you write in the book that quote, all, uh, or in an article, all terminology that experienced improvisers know and love, even the very sacred circle up has to be broken down into information that is non-visual. And yeah. that just got me thinking like, oh, that's most of our work. Yeah, absolutely. It is most of our work. We rely as improvisers. We have to be in the moment, right? We just talked about that. And for most of us, being in the moment means being able to have visual information. And as an improv teacher, most of what I was relying on was verbal cues, uh, like visual cues. But when I'm describing the exercises, I assume that everyone can see. Even the way we set up the typical improv environment, right? Two chairs. Well, that could be a problem if you cannot see that chair. Or (laughs) the worst case scenario, we all keep moving those chairs. Stop moving the chairs, people. Like we, Mm -hmm. I think as improvisers, we've um, mistakenly equated emotion with chair movement. (laughs) When it happens in every Herald show I've ever seen where like, I'm mad, and then the chair gets toppled over. Um, for, For someone with a visual impairment, that could be not only like, not helpful in the scene, it could be dangerous. And so I've really had to rethink the idea of saying things like circle up, uh, or even things as simple as an eight count shakeout um, become problematic if you cannot see. Yeah. Um, We were talking to Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor, and and then her latest book, Just Work. And she told us a story about, um, she wrote her book with a blind editor. Mm -hmm. And he actually showed her that she used the term blind just dozens of times when other words would have worked better. And that was just a, a, she hadn't even considered it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that, that, I mean, I think that's just true for 
any sort of layperson in this, if you, if you haven't come face to face with it, you don't understand, you, you know, you, you don't know you're being insensitive and you certainly right. don't intend to, but we talk a yeah. lot about intent in our work and mm-hmm. action. So that I, I'm imagining then your language, I mean, do you use the term blind or do you, is that we, I mean, we use it in the context of blindness, right? So, yeah. um, so I, I have tried to strip out all of the accidental times I use it or the ways that I'm using it that don't mean what it's supposed to mean, right? So the idea of blind spot is not a, a phrase that I use anymore yeah. because it really is when you, when you think about it, it's, it's implying that people who are blind are, are ignorant of things. Um, right. Which is not true. They, they have, they are lacking visual information. It doesn't mean that they are less than ignorant you know, what have you. So yeah, I've tried to, I've tried to remove all of that language. It can get a little, like, it's sort of like, um, going down a rabbit hole when you start to try to peel all of it out. When I first started working at Perkins, I was very aware of saying things like, see you tomorrow. And, uh, it has since Um, been explained to me by my blind colleagues that you, you can say, see you tomorrow. They know the context in which you mean it. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm definitely not saying everyone be hypersensitive now about your sighted language, but I, I do think there are times when we really need to think about what, what we actually mean and, and improv loves specificity. So why not be more specific? Right, right, right. Okay, so I want I want to get in the weeds a little bit on some some ways you've adapted exercises, and this yeah. touches both on the work with people who are visually impaired or don't have sight at all, but also being on Zoom. They're like, so mm-hmm. we've all had to make that adjustment in terms of doing our stuff on Zoom. Yeah. So you you have the superhero exercise. Can you yeah. explain what that is, and then how you replaced the the pose? Yeah. So, so superhero for the uninitiated is, you know, it's a commonly used uh, exercise in a lot of educational settings, corporate settings, and just, you know, in an an average rehearsal. Um, And what you're trying to get your group to do is get comfortable with one another and, um, you know, sort of help them introduce themselves in a, in a sort of fun and creative way. Really the point of the exercise is getting everyone to take a risk together. Uh, mm-hmm. that is very protected. Um, so what I would in the olden days, in ye olden times, what I would ask people to do, everyone would stand in a circle. So I would say circle up and then everyone would yep. dutifully get in a circle. And then I would say, we're going to do uh, something in three parts. What I want you to think about first is a superpower you've always wanted to have. It could be something as simple uh, as, as something as common as flight or super strength, or it could be something specific to you. Like I would love to have a cappuccino every time I snap my fingers, I give them time, you know, 20 seconds, whatever, first thought, best thought. And then I I would instruct them to come up with a name, a superhero name, and that name has to have something to do with their power. So again, first thought, best thought, if I said cappuccino, then maybe my superhero name is like Dina the Cappuccino Maker, because it has to include my real name. Again, we're getting to know each other. And then the third step of that was, I want you to imagine the movie poster for this superhero's blockbuster or the cover of their comic book. And I want you now to create the pose that would be on the cover of that comic book. Um, And naive Dina and my very first um, time with my group of adults who were blind and visually impaired, when I heard it coming out of my mouth, I (laughs) I realized, well, what do we do? (laughs) So, 
Yeah. Um, and uh, and so what I said is when I when I started to say the phrase and again, this was happening in real time when I started to say the phrase, you know, like the movie poster that would be at the at the theater for this big blockbuster or the comic book cover. Um, and I just in real time quickly tried to adapt and said, I want you to imagine like on that on that cover, on that poster or that comic book cover, there's always a catchphrase. So imagine a catchphrase. Uh, what would this superhero's catchphrase be? Um, and then instead of a pose, which they could certainly feel in their own bodies, but couldn't see uh, of their Others. peers, they said a catchphrase instead. And so everyone had to come up with their own catchphrase. They would say it. And uh, in the original version of the game, ev- that people do their pose. So they, they say their own superhero name, they do their pose, and everyone does the pose back to them as their, they say their name and do their pose back as like a validation and sort of to yes and what they've done. Um, in this in this new version, they would say their name. I would say, Dina the Cappuccino Maker. And then I would say my catchphrase, I don't know, full steam ahead. And everyone would yell nice. full steam ahead at me. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> um, and... And so that is a very simple adaptation. It's in, the exercise is still serving the same purpose. Um, so you're not removing anything from the exercise that was necessary. Um, and so that has worked. The other thing I've come to realize too is that there still was value in the pose. So it's value for them in the pose. Uh, yeah, right? sure. So what I have now done is work the pose back in, and this is especially helpful over Zoom, um, because in Zoom, and and we teach this to our adults, when you're interviewing over Zoom, you have to make sure that you are filling the space in an appropriate way, that you have confidence in your body because you're interviewing with someone who is sighted. They will pay attention to those things, whether or not you care about them, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about this in improv that, you can feel confidence in your body. You can. And so why not fill your body with that confidence? So even though they can't see each other's poses, I've actually brought the pose back in to the exercise right. so that they can, they can still have that confidence and feel in their bodies what it is like. Then they have the muscle memory for when they go into their interviews and they have this shorthand, right? When they're in the, when when they're about to go into an interview, I can say, "Remember, Dina the Cappuccino Maker," and they can sort of puff up and take on that confidence. Um, so again, it's a learning curve, right? What I thought at first was like, "Quickly, I have to take it out and never do it again." Um, what I realized became great adaptation with the slogan, the catchphrase, and we can still work that other stuff in. We just have to be thoughtful and intentional about it. But it is, it's, there's something so powerful about this. Um, so my wife, Anne's late brother, um, had, um, uh, he was in a wheelchair and un- until I experienced his world and especially the world of new year's Eve waiting three hours outside for, you know, a handicapped accessible taxi to show up, mm-hmm. which happened every new year's Eve. Yeah. It was just, you know, and, and then, and then not really being able to get in a restaurant because of one little thing, you know, and not a code and all that, Yeah, that, that, that this application of improvisation i don't know how it couldn't make you a more empathetic person who then would be able to sort of take the time to sit and learn uh and collaborate through difference yeah 
and, and we live we live in a world which is is having a lot of problems with this. And mm-hmm. and and I say this not just as a person on the left because I am. So let's say this, and and because it's not just that it's it's yeah. it's everyone. P- people don't want to see the human inside the human who is across from them, and that's not my experience of the world. I don't think it's your experience of the world either, right? It's not, and not to not to keep harping on how great improvisation is. I feel like doing this work, you really are, as we said before, you're in the moment, you are listening to people. Listening to people is sort of our love language, right? It's the way that improvisers are able to move through the world and build. We build together. And so I do, I am one of those people who believes that if everyone could just take an improv class, we would all be able to communicate so much more, um, not only effectively, but humanely, that we would all actually have our hearts open, (laughs) which again, I know makes me sound, um, I don't know, like a cult leader. Um, And in- in Join the club (laughs) or the cult. Yeah, exactly. Um, In the specific work that, that I'm doing now, it has really unlocked a whole other level of that, right? Because I thought that I was already doing that. I thought right. that I yeah. was already moving to, through the world as openly as I could. And with yeah, guess what? You have more to learn. Like that, we that, all do, right? But the, there's the gift of age is, is, yeah. is one that I'm sitting here at 55 going, oh my God, the things I've learned in yeah. the last five years and the things I'm going to learn. I was just actually uh, uh, corresponding with Ayelet Fishbach, who's a noted professor at University of Chicago that we, we did a bunch of work with. And she's got an, a, a piece of science that's coming out uh, in uh, Psychology Today, I believe. And it's a study that she did here uh, where we took basically all the beginning improv classes and we taught, we had all the teachers learn this one specific instruction to give. Um, and the, <clears throat> the, it's all about when you set the table that um, being uncomfortable is a good thing, yeah. uh, that that aids in personal growth. Mm-hmm. And so, across, and this is across hundreds and hundreds and maybe even thousands of students. Yeah. And it's such a, like we we know this sort of like just anecdotally, mm-hmm. but it's so interesting to have now some science that backs up the fact of like, no, 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 like, but you can't just like, you got to, you have to set the table. You yeah. have to have someone be able to set the table. You're not just going to figure this out yourself. And I, I think that's the other thing like, yes, anyone can kind of teach improv. It's like soccer, but mm. skilled instruction and especially in these applied sense of what, what you do, yeah. that's taking it to another level. That's, that's like, you know, um, uh, you should be making, you know, uh, LSU money, for like, you know, <laughs> Brian <laughs> Kelly money uh, for, for that level of instruction. Yeah, I, I do think. I think one of the great things about improvisation is there's a there we think there's a low barrier like there's a low bar for entry like anyone can do it um and and that doesn't mean anyone can do it well and it doesn't mean that anyone can teach it and that anyone can teach it well and if I'm being honest one of the things that working with this population has has helped me realize is that it's not as the barrier for entry for improv is not the same for everyone. And, no. and I, I say this a lot and I will say it every day. Uh, if improv can be anything, then improv should be for everyone. And the only way that will happen is if we work to make it happen. And 
I think that the disability community is often left out of those kinds of conversations. Those are conversations that are happening now in the world of comedy, and they should be. And the disability community is still often left out of those conversations. And so because of the weird confluence of me being at Perkins now and me sort of understanding firsthand, like, oh, there are, I don't know how they would do this on, on my home stage or the stages that I've traveled to that yeah. I've been lucky enough to travel to around the world. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean they, they can't improvise. Right. We just have, right. To, make it, we just have to make the space for them yeah. to do it. Um, you wrote an article uh, that had 10 things you can do today to support blind or visually impaired during COVID. Mm. Um, and I loved it. I love your <laughs> list because you. I think your list just is a good life list uh, for anyone. Uh, but number one is reach out and ask. So yeah. t- tell us what you mean by reach out and ask. Well, again, we we often think that we we know the right thing to do. Even the most well-meaning people, we think we know the right thing to do. And in in the disability community, doing things for someone is is not as helpful as you think it is, right? These are these are adults who can move through the world uh, and are very capable. And so often, well-meaning people will just assume and and do stuff, right? Um, and those might not be things they want or need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this, you know, I, I talk to a lot of um, teachers around around the world who are now working with people with visual impairments in, in improvisation. And so they'll, they'll, you know, they'll call me and say, what should I do? And it's my first, my first piece of advice is ask. So yeah, don't be afraid. We, we get so squeamish as, as sighted people about asking people about their visual impairment. And we certainly shouldn't just randomly walk up to blind people on the street and say, <laughs> no, don't how can do that. I help you? No, that's awkward. <laughs> don't, don't, please don't do that. They don't want that. Um, I feel like I can speak for them when I say they don't want that. Yeah. Um, but um, if you want to be helpful and you, you think that someone might be struggling, just like with any human being in the world, See what you can do to help. Just ask, you know, just ask. Be the person who's willing to extend that. Uh, Number six on your list is give verbal space. Um, I'm going to say everyone should do this. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as charged because I am a talker. Uh, but talk about what you mean this in, in, in terms of um, the blind and visually impaired. Yeah, I, I will fully admit that this was a big learning curve for me. Um, again, as you can probably tell, Kelly, I am also a talker. And as improvisers, we are trained to jump in, right? We pounce, yeah. we pounce, we pounce, we pounce. And so um, because people that I'm working with don't have the visual cue to know when someone is done talking, they often are reluctant to jump in. And so giving verbal space means not only allowing for someone, allowing the room for someone to talk. So when I'm done, just that silence would let someone with a visual impairment know Oh, now may I, maybe I can jump in. The other thing that I do a lot now to facilitate conversation is uh, ensure that everyone is called on. So yeah. to be able to say, Kelly, did you have anything to add? And knowing that in this space, it's okay to say, no, I don't. That's not a judgment. Um, so I think those are two things you can do. Yeah, verbal verbal space is key, really, for anyone. Yeah, 
Well, I think too, we, we feel like the, those silences are awkward and they really aren't, especially if we are taking the time to truly consider the, the thing the other person said. There's a lot of power in that. Um, it's, it's a way to claim power and give power uh, yeah. at, the, at, at the same time. Um, and, so, and we talk ahead. about internalizing a lot, right? As improvisers, mm-hmm. that we want to internalize what that person said so that we can genuinely respond to it. Um, and one of the ways you can do that is actually give yourself a moment to process what they just said. That's it. So you've done a bunch of other stuff in, in, in sort of related areas. Uh, when you were at Improv Boston, you started a bullying prevention program using yeah, Improv. Talk to did. us about that. Yeah. So that was sort of my first, well, my second um, attempt at taking what we were doing in shows or learning on stage and bringing it into the real world. Um, when I was, when I first started taking improv classes, I was like a full-fledged adult, uh, you know, in my 30s. And I was working in a preschool uh, for kids um, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and their peers, their typical peers. So I was like, I feel like that thing I just learned in improv class could work here. So that yeah. was my first sort of attempt at at bridging those two worlds. And then when I was working um, at Improv Boston, I was also a parent. So I had a son who at the time was in first grade, I think first grade, and he was being bullied at school. Mm-hmm. And I was, I just, it felt so like antiquated and wrong to me. Like, haven't we solved this problem by now? This is so dumb. Like, right. And I also felt like if y'all just took an improv class, like none of you mm-hmm. would care about this anymore. And then mm-hmm. I thought, well, wait, maybe that's what we do. So I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time in a, and they have a school system that is full of Harvard professors and MIT professors and some of the best thought leaders in the world in this public school system. And so I went to to my connections there and said, look, I'm a parent and I'm also an improviser and this is going to sound probably a little, uh, you might be skeptical, but I can, will you let me try it? And, and so they did, they let me test it in that school. Um, and then in other schools around Cambridge and, um, you know, it's, it's still running now and that's, he's, he's 20 now. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You know, my, my 24 year old experienced bullying and, and, and it was, you know, they, they didn't handle it and I loved his school, but they, it was something they were unprepared to handle. Yeah. So no, it, it yeah, I think it goes on still more than people talk about because again, that's yeah. another one of those, especially for young people, kind of a hidden shame yeah. uh, that they don't want to address. Yeah. And it's, I think it's also gotten worse in the last, you know, six years, five, five and six years. Um, and, and basically the premise of the program that we rolled out was we can choose the society we want to build. We can choose to build the community that we want to be a part of. And so what if we all just chose to say yes and to positivity and we chose to not accept that bullying was cool and that it has to be allowed. Um, and it was really about sort of being an active participant in your community uh, and standing up for your, for your peers. Um, and, you know, the idea that if we all yes and support, um, you know, the very tenets of improv, if we all agree to support one another and trust each other, and have each other's backs, then this other stuff won't have a chance to take root. And also to get kids to understand that the bully um, that we all 
you know, identify then becomes that. And like, we feed that cycle that you don't know what a kid is coming in with any given day. And so let's have compassion and understanding for everyone, including that kid. Because I say this in every bullying prevention workshop I do. I don't believe that any kid wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to go to school and attack someone today right? or physically. I don't believe that's true. I think that we don't know what that kid has already faced by the time they get on that bus or they get, they walk through the doors or they they're on the playground. Um, and that's a huge heartbreak that I don't think we think enough about. Um, and I also would tell the kids, like, look around the room. These adults are part of your support system. They are part of your team. They are here for you. Like, rely on them. And then the thing that the school would have to agree to when we came in is that they would then go back to their classrooms and write up a social contract based on what we had just talked about. So let's all agree to support one another. Let's all agree to have each other's backs. Let's all agree to commit to positivity and like really build out action items for how they were going to do that during the year. And every kid would sign it and it would hang in the classroom for the entire year. Um, Yeah. I think the phrase hurt people, hurt people is is a thing uh, here. Uh, okay, so in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story, but I want to talk just a little bit about the applied improv space. So yeah. applied improv is in my title. Mm-hmm. Um, there are I'm staring at the second uh, uh, edition of well, it's not a second edition. It's a, a new book, but applied improv mindset book uh, mm-hmm. by that or, an organization that, that is like that. You do this work. I have a thorny relationship with, with our, this little field because, because I'm just not quite sure what it is. And, and my, my bias coming in uh, to this is that you have either people who are experts in a field, take an improv class and then are like into it and then, and go that route. Or you have people who are improvisers who might either themselves be sort of self-diagnosing something or are dabblers in other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that's largely true in terms of the, the, the paths. And I think, you know, mine is a little more unique because I've been able to sort of been s- steeped in, in both areas, like uh, various areas of, of science and inquiry while having this sort of background, long, long background at, at, at second city. But I'm curious right. w- how you see this field and, and is it emerging? Is it, is it going to turn to something else? You get, get my drift on this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there are more people calling their work this work. And I think there are more people doing this work, but what do we define as this work? Right. Mm -hmm. There are definitely a lot more people saying, Oh, I'm an improviser or I took an improv class. And I think that would be cool to try in this area. Right. So if Mm -hmm. we broaden the idea of implied improvisation to be that, to include the dabblers. I do think it's growing. Uh, I think, and I'm all for risk-taking and I'm all for trying things. I think that we all need to be careful about the idea of making sure everyone understands these are experiments in progress. Yeah, We are going to work together and we are going to bring in experts to help make sure these experiments are... That's right are safe and well-researched and um, leave people in a better place than where we found them. Um, And I've been very lucky that in every place that I've tried, right. um, When I wanted to bring this into the world of kids 
on the autism spectrum, I was working in a classroom that had experts in that. When I wanted yep. to do it with bullying, I brought in child psychologists to help me develop it. At Perkins, we obviously have the world's greatest experts in visual impairment working with me. And I think that has to be part of the equation. It can't just be the perky improviser who shows up and says, you know what? I have a great idea. It can start that way and it should start that way. And we need to back that with, right. um, with more because yeah. I am very well-meaning <laughs> and I am, and I learned very quickly if I didn't have partners that delivered the expert, the expertise, um, I, I would, I would feel uncomfortable delivering, um, yeah. in the spaces I deliver in, right. I, I shouldn't be walking into a room of, um, brain trauma survivors unless I've talked to doctors and therapists um, right. and have some of those people in the room with me. It, it's, it, I would feel irresponsible. Yeah. We're, we're very careful in our corporate work often to, and you probably do this too, of being like, I'm not coming in here as an expert in marketing, yeah. um, uh, but we have a particular kind of expertise in this uh, practice, mm -hmm. in these particular uh, um, games and exercises that can be applied to your uh, human being work, um, which includes marketing. Uh, yeah. So, so it's funny. It's funny. I think in many ways we're more careful about the corporate stuff than people end up being about the health stuff, which really it should be the other way around. Um, you know, but I, I, I actually very much appreciate the way you articulated that because that, that, that was the answer I was looking for. So thank you. <laughs> well, good. Um, it was very, it was, it was kind, it was not snotty. And I always wor worry that that's the area that I'm going to veer into. Um, so we always end the podcast asking for a yes and story. Um, yeah. I know it feels like, a, you know, an easy layup for you, but even if it is, can, can you have a story for us? <laughs> I mean, every story of my adult life is a yes and story, Kelly. Uh, I, I will say this, that um, I grew up doing theater. I went to Emerson College. I studied comedy there. Um, improvisation was a, you know, a fun thing we did, but, but we, it was not considered like something you do with your life. I graduated college, went and worked in real jobs, um, you know, was a, was a grown up, and I had two kids and I was just missing that creative thing in my life. And, um, and so I started calling improv theaters in Boston to, to ask about classes mm -hmm. and, uh, signed up for one that was like closest to my house, even though it was still an hour and I was driving there and I thought, this is a mistake. I am mm. 30 years old. I'm a mom. I live an hour from here. I do not belong here. Uh, everyone there is going to be 22. They will all be wearing plaid shirts and have Converse sneakers on. Like I, I, I will not fit in. And I got there and I walked in and it was true, right? I was mm -hmm. the oldest person there. I was the only person that seemed like they weren't either in college or right out of college. And I took a deep breath and really like grabbed my keys and I was about to walk out the door. And the instructor came up to me class hadn't started yet. And he was like, Hey, I just want to introduce myself. Like, are you registered? Like what's going on? Cause he could tell I was about to bolt. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I was like, Oh, I, I just, I wanted, I just need to go check my parking. I didn't, I don't know if I paid the meter. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, yeah, well you're in the lot. So you're fine. <laughs> I was like, mm -hmm. oh, like he had seen me park and yeah. I was like, okay. Um, and he was like, cool, no pressure, but we'd love to have you. So he, he knew yeah, what sure. I was going through. And in that moment, I was like, 
I just, what's the worst that can happen if I stay for these two hours? What's the worst that could happen? Um, and I hadn't even heard the phrase yes and yet, but internally I was like, just, I'm just going to commit to whatever this is. And if after two hours, this, this still feels like a mistake, maybe I, maybe I never come back. Um, and by the end of that two hours, I was like, this is the rest of my life. This is wow, absolutely that quickly. the rest of my life. He, I mean, he was very good. Um, uh-huh. Also, I realized, like, you know, you sometimes you just connect with something and you think this is what I was born for. And, and I do believe that. Um, and, and I have had the joy of having so many moments since then because of improvisation where I get to say, this is what I was born for and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I love that. I also met the love of my life through improvisation. Yeah, well, as did I. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as did right? I. That's, and that, that is not an uncommon thing. Well, yeah, it's... it's um, it, I mean, the divorces as well is just as common. <laughs> I, I actually dumped an on-improviser. Uh, I was married. Um, this probably uh-huh. doesn't need to be said, Same. but it's fine. Um, and uh, yeah, and then years later, uh, found the person I was meant to be with through improvisation. It's, it's a vulnerable art form. We, um, we experience a lot together, uh, when we improvise together. And I think it's not an accident that a lot of people find their person through this work. (laughs) Tina, Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's been a joy. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Once survived.